A note about statistics used this season on the fall line. In the period we discuss, 1978 to 1996, Grady Hospital was number one for infant abduction in the United States. This is confirmed in Nick Meck's report released in 2006, which covered most years pertinent to our cases. At the time of production, this report was the most up-to-date public material available on that specific ranking. Outside of the range 1978 to 1996, another hospital may earn the designation of most kidnapped. All material relating to Grady's abductions refers to the years covered in the podcast. This is The Fall Line. Imagine Atlanta, whatever version you'd like. Maybe 1996, the Olympics, with a freshly scrubbed cityscape and a bright new statue to host the torch. Maybe 2014, when a few inches of ice gridlock thousands on the highway, leaving families to sleep in their cars or hike home in the kind of snowstorm Georgia had never prepared for. Whatever Atlanta you see, chances are that Grady Memorial Hospital is there, in the background, whether you can name it or not. Here in the city, there are many Grady stories— and the people who have experienced them are diverse, while at the same time connected by a few key factors. They live in or near downtown Atlanta, and they're dependent on the county hospital for their health care needs. For instance, there's Sung Cho, the child of Korean immigrants who just moved to Atlanta a few months before his birth. His mother did not have any prenatal care. Her first trip to the hospital was the day her son arrived. Sung was born at Grady Memorial, and his mother felt this connected him to their new city and the neighbors they lived and worked with. It honestly feels special being born at Grady and living in Atlanta. Grady is sort of an iconic hospital here. It's kind of known as the hospital for the homeless, poor, and shot. In Georgia today, there seems to be more transplants than natives, so being a native and being born at Grady gives me a feeling of being a legit Atlantan. When I was young, my family had a butcher shop inside the municipal market, which is right next to Grady. They were there for about nine to ten years, and as a kid, I grew up around there, running around chasing pigeons and talking to homeless people and checking out the Northside Pawn Shop. The way I learned of the term Grady Baby was because my mom would always introduce me to her customers, who were typically older black women, She would tell them he born at Grady, and they would all smile and pinch me on the cheek and say, oh, you're a Grady baby. I heard that all my life, so I never felt ashamed or embarrassed of it. I grew up feeling like it was something special. That term, Grady baby, can be complicated. Sometimes it's pejorative, indicative of judgment based on race and class and place. And for some, like Sung, it's a point of pride. There are plenty of experience-like songs, easy births, happy endings. But there are other stories, too. Just ask Shante Alexander, who was abducted from Grady Memorial Hospital when she was just 12 hours old. She's one of seven babies, 
all African American who were abducted between 1978 and 1996 from the hospital or as a result of their stay there. And as for Grady Baby, she's much less fond of the title. In my family, I have a nickname, and they call me the Grady Baby. I don't like it. It's annoying. <laughs> but there, it, it's it's a happy moment now for us because it's over. I'm here, but I, I can't grasp it. Honestly, I can't even as an adult. I can't really understand the mentality of someone taking an innocent child from their biological parent. It's just, it, I can never understand it. Sometimes I wish I could, but I don't, I don't think I ever will. To tell the stories of the babies who were kidnapped from Grady Hospital or as a direct result of their stay, we need to start in two places at once with the hospital itself and with the city that surrounds it, gathering Grady up and obscuring it with towering buildings. The flow of humanity in and out of its doors is rarely seen by those who aren't looking for it. Perhaps you're familiar with the Tex McIver trial. Grady Hospital is just a few blocks from the exit off I-85 that allegedly frightened McIver so much that he asked his wife for his gun. If Tex was really afraid of these people he saw under the bridge and who he may have called Black Lives Matter protesters remains unproven. If people were there at all, they were likely the home insecure and homeless citizens who often ring Grady's perimeter. They hover near the hospital that provides their basic medical care, sleeping under overpasses still wearing the plastic bracelets from their last discharge. To tell this story, we have to see Atlanta as the cities it has been in 1978, 1989, 1996, and beyond. But the present is superimposed over the past, and the result is blurry. The city we were, the city we are, and the city we hope to be. For instance, in 2018, Atlanta is Hollywood South. It's a place where 20-somethings want to move. It's where there are so many success stories of entrepreneurs, music careers, the research at the CDC, the scholarship at our 30-odd colleges and universities. And notably, Atlanta is a center of Black success. In 2015, Forbes described our city as, quote, the unofficial capital of Black America. And Forbes also pointed out the high percentage of Black homeowners, business owners, and the strength of Atlanta's historically Black colleges and universities. Since 1974, all of Atlanta's mayors have been Black men and women. This city prospers, and much of that prosperity is due to the influx of African-American professionals from all over the country, especially since the new century dawned. Atlanta has become something of an immigration hub, too and our city is better for it. There's an old adage that Atlanta is a city of transplants, but the truth is, there are many generations of Atlantans who have been here for a century or more, and perhaps longer. Our country has done a thorough job of erasing genealogical trails of some communities. In Atlanta, many of those people are of color, some living in the same neighborhoods their grandparents did, mostly in Fulton and DeKalb counties. Those counties make up the city that you're imagining right now. 
But some of those neighborhoods have been bulldozed. Some have priced their original residents out to make way for live-work-play high-rises that are under eternal luxury construction. There have been periods of what's often called white flight to the suburbs. And that's not to say that black Atlantans don't live in the suburbs. They do, and in majority, and always have. But during the 1970s and 1980s, when Atlanta was often ranked as one of the poorest and most dangerous cities in the United States, its metro center was for the poorest residents, often of color, maybe recent immigrants, or the children of immigrants. In 1978, the year Raymond Green was abducted from his mother's apartment and as a result of his stay at Grady, the Atlanta metro population was majority black and living at a comparatively high poverty rate. Atlanta's police force was still months away from the first of the Atlanta child murders, a series of killings that would establish the city's missing persons unit as a subdivision of homicide. This is not a podcast about those killings. Other projects have that covered, but you can't talk about Atlanta in the late 70s and early 80s without mentioning the crimes that changed our city. In the mid-1970s, funding had brought in record numbers of police recruits. Danny Agan, a former lieutenant who you'll hear from throughout our series, remembers a graduating police academy class of 60. That's a huge number compared to what we might see today. But... That was followed by a four-year hiring and promotion freeze that, lasting from 1978 until 1982, was in effect during two of the infant abductions and all of the Atlanta child murders. In Atlanta, there were 143 murders in 1978. By November of 1979, 200 more would occur. And in that same year, a disgruntled Atlantan paid for a 27-foot billboard that was to read, quote, warning, You are now in the city of Atlanta where the police are underpaid, undermanned, and under-equipped. Use extreme caution while here. Incidentally, that billboard never went up because the construction supplies were vandalized before it could actually be constructed. By 1979, the Atlanta Journal, our newspaper, had declared our city murder capital of the USA and had the census data to prove it. That hiring freeze at the APD made it more difficult to address crime. Everyone was stretched thin. The majority of Atlanta's homicide victims were persons of color, including the children and young adults who died in what the papers then called the Atlanta Youth Murders. Missing persons were largely black, too, like Raymond Green, just five days old when he disappeared from his mother's apartment. He was snatched by a woman who'd been allowed to stay on Grady's maternity ward for days and was posing as an aunt to one of the babies there. 1978 was our before time, before all the world was familiar with the face of Wayne Williams. Just three years later, and three months after Williams was arrested, there was Shante Alexander's abduction. In 1981, the city was better equipped. A dig through the archives shows national news attention, with articles appearing everywhere from Chicago to California and beyond. In this case, the key to success was a forensic sketch. It was so precise that the kidnapper, Louise Lett, was apprehended within a few weeks. What a difference a few years can make. 
The child murders completely shifted the Atlanta Police Department, if not transforming it, then at least better equipping it to deal with serious crime. But the APD is only one part of the equation. Grady Memorial is another. And the two are and always have been linked, in service to the city and as part of the same equation. As former APD Lieutenant Danny Egan explained during our interview, APD and Grady are like joined at the hip. I mean, that's, I guess that's the best way that I can put it. The Atlanta Police Department's always had a close association with Grady. Um, going back years ago, anytime an officer was injured on duty, uh, that officer was taken to Grady Hospital, whether it was for something as minor as a paper cut, if it required a trip to the hospital, you went to Grady. Or if you were shot, then you would go to Grady. Uh, Grady handled everything for the city related to city employees being injured on duty. And and Grady did a lot of good work. They still do. Grady is the place to go, of course, if, if you're badly hurt. Atlanta police had a great relationship with Grady. With all that said, uh, Grady could be a pain because there's a lot of stuff that was broke down there. Uh, lack security, there would be crimes that would be committed there that could have been avoided if security had been a little bit better. Sometimes if you were down there trying to do a follow-up on an investigation, uh, red tape, administrative red tape would get in the way of, of, of you trying to get to the root of what your investigation was about. But they had their protocols and we had our job to do. So, you know, I understand, you know, everybody's got a different agenda and different rules to go by. So I'm not bad-mouthing them in that respect. Uh, but Grady was kind of a chaotic place just because of the fact it's so big. Everybody went there. It was open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. The doors were wide open. People came and went as they pleased. Any hour of the day, there's no telling who you would see down there or what you would see going out. So Grady was slammed and the APD was too. But two parts don't make Atlanta's whole. In 1989, when the next baby, Janquia Brooks, was kidnapped, Atlanta had other problems. The crack epidemic was in full swing. We were hit hard. From the 1980s through the early 1990s, Atlanta was described as experiencing a phenomenon that's called urban decay. And yet, the population was steadily growing, spreading through a sprawling metro that was once famously explained as, quote, not a city, but a landscape. At least part of that landscape was violence. That period saw so many murders that local news station 11 Alive has suggested they were the work of one or more serial killers. The victims, black women, were strangled, left to be discovered over decades, and their murders unsolved. The Murder Accountability Project data supports that theory, that a killer or killers might have considered 1980s and 90s Atlanta a fertile hunting ground. The Murder Accountability Project looks at data to identify clusters of activity, which indicate serial murder. And, as they explain to Eleven Alive, quote, the biggest cluster in the nation is Atlanta's strangulation murders. What about the rest of our landscape? It was in transition. Seven years before the Olympics changed the shape of our city, literally, as housing projects were bulldozed and restaurants like Po Folks were renamed to reflect the picture of what we wanted to be, Atlanta could not be defined by any one thing. Even as the city too busy to hate, 
it wasn't quite right. Allegations of Ku Klux Klan activity, some allegedly tied to the Atlanta child murders and beyond, seeped in from more rural areas. There was the founding of the now infamous Red Dog Unit, an APD task force organized to fight drug crime. They dressed in fatigues and had an in-your-face militaristic approach that eventually led to million-dollar lawsuits. And at the same time, the airport expanded, on its way to becoming the international hub it is today. And sex crime and trafficking expanded along with it. So in 1989, Janquia's kidnapping, again from Grady's maternity unit, was barely a blip on that radar. She was recovered, returned, her story filed away, her juvenile kidnapper never named in the papers. Janquia grew up in Atlanta, surrounded by a city that she might not have ever known. Others weren't so lucky. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps. So for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The New Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnewcalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NewCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fallnucalm.com. Fallnucalm.com. Between 1991 and 1996, there were four more abductions. And that's strange if you consider the stretch of time between the first three. So what was happening at Grady? What was happening in Atlanta? Atlanta Magazine calls the 90s the decade that changed our city. The AGC reports that drug crime, mainly trafficking and cocaine that came over from Mexico, peaked in the mid-90s and earned us the title again of the most dangerous city in the U.S. But there was also a lot of youth culture brewing, with the hip-hop scene headed by acts like Outkast and Goody Mob, alongside the gradual development of Freak Nick. 
Freaknik was the Black College Spring Break and began as an HBCU picnic and slowly transformed into a multi-day event that filled the city with 100,000 celebrating college students. It's what could be called the biggest party the United States has ever seen. So, what does that all have to do with babies? Possibly nothing, directly. But Atlanta was experiencing a population boom that began in the 80s and never really stopped. Even now, little patches of the city are torn down and built and rebuilt again, shoving in more housing along every street, slowly gentrifying the city center and sliding out in every direction from its axis. The city was and is full. And Grady was serving more of that population with each passing day. And we don't want to mislead you. Much of that service was phenomenal, even unbelievable. So many people were saved, but there just wasn't enough of anything to go around. A former Grady ER nurse who was there from 1977 until 2012 described a situation to us that's emblematic of what we mean. Trying to save a toddler in a hallway because there wasn't anywhere else to put her. The other story that comes to mind, again, I was working the night shift, and um, not everybody who came to Grady would come in an ambulance. There were many patients who would drive up on the emergency ramp and either get dumped off or people would come in with them or they would come in needing a wheelchair because these people had been hurt. And this particular night, somebody drove up and they brought in a two-year-old who had been shot in the chest. And we were packed, and we did not have a stretcher for her to go on. So we had to put her on the floor and start CPR. And she didn't live. And I don't remember the circumstances around how she got shot or why she got shot. And I feel bad that she didn't survive. But I was so glad Grady was there for her. She did have a chance. Once again, the number one trauma center in the state. She had... Multiple people working on her. She had as much attention as she could have gotten anywhere. But that has always stayed with me, that we were so busy we didn't even have stretcher for her. Speaking of not having enough, there is so little news coverage on some of these cases. We don't have much information on two of the 90s babies who we've dubbed Baby X and Baby Y. Baby X was abducted in 1992 by a juvenile, and there's only a single newspaper story that marks the event. No details, only the bare bones. We have a little more on Christopher Lee, who was taken from the maternity waiting room, likely because his kidnapper, Cherise Felder, couldn't actually make it back into the ward. And yet, that didn't stop another girl who we'll call Alexis Smith— a 15-year-old who stole the baby we call Baby Y right after his circumcision in 1996. She was later tried and sentenced as an adult. And there's also Tavish Sutton in 1993, taken from the children's wing where, at a month old, he was recovering from minor surgery. He's still missing today. Questions arise. How are these women getting onto the wards to steal children? And... More importantly, why did it happen four times in the span of a few years? Baby snatching is a relatively rare crime, one that mostly occurs within ethnic groups and under reliably similar circumstances. Young women who think they need babies for any variety of reasons. 
We'll tell you more about that later in the season, including Nick Mech's assessment of techniques used to infiltrate hospitals and how the kidnappers get away with it. We know that Grady was first in the nation for abductions in the years we're covering, and in the years covered in Nick Mech's 83-06 analysis, but what we don't have is the necessary context to understand how that number compares to other hospitals if broken down by city size, population served, or even funding. We also don't know who was number two on the list, though we've tried to find out. If you were to adjust numbers based on any of these factors, perhaps we'd see Grady's status as number one in a different light. This problem is not unique to Grady or to Georgia. There have been abductions all over the U.S. from Arkansas to Illinois to California. What we do know is that no matter the state, the abductions are more likely to happen at county hospitals that serve lower-income populations. Still, seven babies is a lot, even considering a population boom or a city at the height of its drug crime activity or frantic preparation for the Olympics. None of that explains why a hospital for our most underserved new mothers also made them more vulnerable. Grady officials have declined to issue a statement for this podcast, so we don't know what their answer to that question might have been. The fault can't lie at just one point, but... Grady is certainly part of that crack, and we aim to follow it all the way to its origin. This is forgotten history. It's rarely discussed nowadays in a beautiful city crowded with film crews and college students and construction. But distance doesn't erase the trauma, not for the mother of Raymond Green or the mother of Tavish Sutton, or even the mothers and babies who were eventually reunited and who often, by necessity, have had to continue seeking care at Grady. Shante Alexander, abducted in 1981, feels unsettled every time she sees the hospital. In a recent interview, she explained, My father um, was just recently in Grady and I hated his treatment. He um, had to have his foot and leg amputated um, in complication with diabetes. And it's like every time I walk in there when I went to visit him, I get an eerie feeling in that place. It just does something to my spirit. Shante's mother, Sandra Alexander, is more to the point. After her daughter was kidnapped and after the treatment she experienced, she told us that she has avoided that hospital as much as possible. That did for me with Grady. That did. Now, when my mama or my brother, whatever, if they in hospital down there, I go see them. But other than that, mm-mm. anything else could don't take me to Grady. Not take me to Grady because I wouldn't go. Right now, in 2018, in the downtown streets bristling with money, with signs indicating that the latest Donald Glover project or Marvel sequel or a hundred other things are being made just down the road, it's easy to erase Atlanta's past. And that's dangerous. If you're on the inside, safe, you have trouble imagining that there's any other reality, that there can be many cities at once. We think to ourselves, it couldn't happen here. But it could, and it did. And no one wants to explain why. And with two open infant abduction cases, that isn't good enough. When we spoke to Dr. Kamara Jones, a Morehouse associate professor and medical doctor, 
She told us a story about her own life before Atlanta that explains this problem perfectly. When I was pregnant with my first child, my daughter, I was a graduate student, a PhD student at Hopkins. And I went over to the Women's Health Center at Hopkins and for my prenatal care. So for every visit, I would go and I would sit in a beautiful waiting room with a table strewn with magazines and that type of thing. And uh, it was lovely. So one day I had to go to the bathroom. So I was trying to get to the bathroom and I took a wrong turn and I opened up a door and just on the other side of a wall, there were pregnant women standing crowded in the hall and then benches and all. I had accidentally gone to the clinic you know, to the prenatal clinic for people who were not students at Johns Hopkins, were not, you know, um, you know, high income or, or whatever. And I didn't even know that that disparity existed. And I was quite aware of things, but often people, and people who were at the clinic didn't know that just on the other side of that wall, there was a very different setting with different amenities and the amount of time probably they were given in the visit and the like. So, there are clear distinctions in the types of care that people are getting, even within the same building, right? And it's not enough for us to be ignorant of those things. We need to be curious about the conditions, you know, across on the other side of the wall or across town. If we're going to unpack the stories of the Grady babies, the families, the kidnappers, the hospital, the police force, the city, we have to recognize that there's an inside and an outside, and very different decisions are made based on where one is standing. As in any cold case, there have been too many closed doors, too much tucked away to preserve the image of a hospital that, most of the time, was filled with people doing the best work possible with fewer resources than they deserved. If there is ever going to be a chance for Raymond Green or Tavish Sutton to be found, we've got to look, not just for them, but at what surrounded them when they disappeared. Welcome to Atlanta. Still the city too busy to hate, sure, but we're also a city afraid to remember. But it's time, and we'll be back with the story of Raymond Lamar Green, the first baby kidnapped from Grady. We hope you'll join us then. (laughs) 